13, and if you've got the Bible in front of you, it's page 1212. 1212. This is a passage that Rob is going to be speaking about, explaining to us, and applying uh, in a few moments' time. It's Hebrews 13, short part, uh, verses 7 to 10. It's short, but it's really standalone in many ways. Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 10, page 1212. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michael. Do keep that open. Let me pray as we start. Uh, Heavenly Father, indeed, do not let us be carried away by what is false, but strengthen our hearts through the grace made known to us in your word, uh, the grace of this Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Great, it's lovely to be here. I, I realise I haven't actually been to the 6.30 service for, for quite a few months. So for those of you I, I haven't met, my name is Rob. Um, I am on staff here as an associate minister. I also work down at the Round Church, uh, where we do a lot of stuff uh, sharing the gospel uh, through the history of Cambridge. So I've been thinking quite a bit in the, over the last year about the history of Cambridge, um, what makes our city what it is, where it came from, why on earth it grew, things like that. Um, now, you might think that the, the, the city of Cambridge, well, it's all about the university. Surely that's what got it going. Actually, little known fact, the town of Cambridge comes about because of swamps. Don't know how that makes you feel if you're, you're native to Cambridge. Um, but until about 100 years ago, um, where we're sitting now would have been in the middle of vast tracts of marshland, swamp. Um, miles and miles, um, especially in that direction. Disease-ridden, leech-infested, thick, oozing mud, all the way till you get to King's Lynn. Uh, in fact, if you wander down towards Fenditton um, uh, during the winter, you'll often find yourself, uh, if you wander off the beaten track, getting sucked into the mud still to this day. Cambridge exists because it was the only ground solid enough to build a bridge on. Uh, so if you know the bridge up by Maudlin, where the punts live, that's the only solid crossing point for miles and miles. So if you wanted to travel from, say, the Midlands into East Anglia, you had two choices. You, you could cross the bridge with confidence, safe on solid ground, or you could take your chances wandering through miles and miles of marshland where you would either drown, catch a fever, get eaten by leeches, the works. That was your choice. Slimy swamp solid ground. That's the image I want to play with. That's the image of the question that every human being ultimately has to ask about human life. That's the choice we face. Because we live in a world, if you like, with lots of different paths open to us, lots of possible routes through the swamp, different values, different ways of seeing the world, different life decisions. And the question is simple. Where is the ground solid? Where can we stand safely? Where can we be sure that the ground won't give way under us like a November walk to Fenditton? Those are the questions that our anonymous author to the Hebrews wants to consider this evening. 
So Seafstead, we're coming to the end of this letter. Chapter 13 gives us a series of sort of short, snappy bits of advice. And as you read them, they can seem a little bit scattered. And you may have picked that up as we read verses 7 to 10. Um, lots of actual practical advice in there. Um, remember your leaders. Uh, do not be carried away. Be strengthened by grace. All, all, all good stuff. What ties it all together? Well, what ties it together is, is, the, is a call to stand on the solid ground and not get carried away into the swamp. Those are our two big points this evening, keeping it simple. Point one, stand on the solid ground. Two, do not leave the solid ground. So as we dive into our text, I want us to focus on uh, verse eight. Um, it, it seems quite random, comes out of nowhere. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no introduction, there's no explanation, just Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Sounds great. What on earth does it mean? Well, this is the truth on which um, the Hebrews this letter is addressed to. This is the truth on which they have chosen to stand. They have come to believe the claims about Jesus, preacher from Galilee who got himself crucified by the Romans, it seemed. They come to believe the most amazing claims that he had in fact gone on to conquer death, that he was God's chosen king, the Messiah, God's own son. And these were claims that were then, and in fact now, they were unpopular, derided, mocked, a minority opinion. And more than that, these were beliefs that were getting people who believed them killed. So the Hebrews might well have been asking, is this ground really that solid? And our author is reassuring them, yes, it is. This is, in fact, the only solid ground worth standing on. An author does this by taking these Hebrews right back to the character of Christ, who he is, what he is like. And I don't know if you, it struck you as odd that the phrasing, Jesus Christ is the same. What does that mean? You know, the, the same as what? Well, if we go right back to the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1, the author quotes Psalm 102 up on the screen. Now, Psalm 102, it's a poem from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, most of the audience of this letter would have been brought up with this. Uh, it's a poem that addresses God. In the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The psalm is describing how God created the heavens and the earth. And you pick up from that, the psalmist wants to make a very clear distinction between God on the one hand and creation on the other. Creation will perish. Reality changes. The cosmos will, will wear out like a moth-eaten garment. Lives will unravel and come to an end. But God, he remains the same. He does not change. In fact, he is the one who changes creation. And yet in chapter 1, the author to the Hebrews applies these verses to the Son, to Jesus. Now, this is, this is where the fun begins. What this is saying is that Jesus of Nazareth, 
carpenter's kid who grew up in Galilee, is the unchanging creator of the universe. Fully God, fully man. Um, The idea that Christians call the incarnation. And in chapter 13, right at the other end of the letter, our author comes back to this idea that Jesus Christ is the same. He does not change. Not yesterday, not today, not forever. There's several things going on here. It is a claim that Jesus of Nazareth is in the flesh the God who does not change, the God who remains the same. That means he is the God who was there in the pages of the Old Testament, Um, the same God who spoke to Abraham and Moses, uh, the God who gave victory to Joshua, family to Ruth, a throne to David, Uh, the God who had been worshipped in the life of the temple as unchanging, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious, And yet this same God chose to be born as a human being, a baby in a provincial backwater of the Roman Empire. The God who had neither beginning or end was conceived and born. The God who was all-knowing learnt how to walk and talk. Jesus had to take his first steps. The God who is perfect um, knew what it was like to toss and turn, unable to sleep. Uh, on a very, very warm night. Sympathize with us very much in that respect. The God who is life himself put himself through the pain of having his hands pierced by iron nails, driven there by men he had created. The God who cannot change and cannot suffer had lungs which struggled to inflate, which gasped for air and eventually gave out. Why is trusting this Jesus solid ground? Well, in Christ, we have someone who is both the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious God, creator of the universe, and yet who also knows exactly what it is like to be human and to suffer and even to be tested and to fail. This incarnate even calls on those who come to him He tells them to call him brothers and sisters. Sorry, he calls them his brothers and sisters. Imagine that, being a brother or a sister to the creator of the universe. And not just yesterday, not just 2,000 years ago, but today, 4th of August 2019. And not just today, but tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after that, forever. This Jesus will never stop being the all-sovereign ruler of the universe, And he will never stop being the older brother to those who trust him. This is what Hebrews has spent 13 chapters going on about. And the author just wants to make sure we know it here in verse 8. What could be more sure and solid ground than this? This is the ground where the author to the Hebrews would have us stand. I think that's why we get verse 7 quite a bit of practical advice there. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Because down through the ages, throughout the Bible, throughout history, Christ has proven himself to be the same, the same in faithfulness again and again and again. And it's not just happening sort of up there in some, some sort of abstract sense. It happens in the lives of people. The proof that Jesus remains the same can be seen in the lives of those who go before us in the faith. Those who've 
trailblaze, led the way for us to follow. Um, in fact, you know, the author defines our leaders as those who have spoken the word of God to us, heard the word, passed it on. For the Hebrews themselves, this probably means the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, people like that. For us, um, we've never met the apostles in the flesh, but a whole range of people this could be. Parents, grandparents who first talked to us about praying, about God, about what he'd done for us. Um, Friends, colleagues, peers at university, uh, colleagues at work, mentor figures. And there will be those today, um, small group leaders, um, church leaders who continue to speak to us. And of course, joining up the two, um, I've already admitted I like history, there's 2,000 years of church history joining the apostles to today. Uh, Men and women in every time and place, Steve mentioned that earlier, around the globe, who have passed on the word of God so that we could have it today. And our author wants us to have a good, hard look at all those who've gone before us. Consider the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith, he says. Um, that means, means reading the Acts of the Apostles, uh, reading the guys who, who, who got these Hebrews where they were. Um, it means learning from our own mentors, uh, those who have spoken the word of God to us, over the years. Um, Talk to them about what it is to stand on the solid ground. And and yes, it might mean taking an interest in church history, seeing how God has proved himself again and again in so many different contexts. In all these different ways, we will see self-sacrifice, courage, wisdom. Um, One author I like put it, the family business of following Christ. Uh, Brothers and sisters who who left their homes to travel across the globe to make Jesus known. Uh, Brothers and sisters who who went through torture and death rather than deny their faith. Brothers and sisters who have felt despair at their sin and yet have come again and again to the assurance of the grace that Christ offers. We'll see this 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. 20 years ago, 22 years ago, yesterday, today. We will see things that only make sense if Christ has remained the same, has continued to sustain those who've gone before us, just as he promised. Uh, And those people give us a picture of how he has remained the same. And yet amid this assurance, there's a note of warning, a note of urgency and concern. Um, This is our second point. Uh, It's there in verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Now you know the solid ground, our author is saying. Don't wander off. Don't wander off the beaten track into the marshlands. Don't stand where the ground will give way, or you'll sink into the grime and be swallowed up without a trace. And you might think he's overreacting. You know, if the ground is so solid, then why the worry? Well, our author speaks here of all kinds of strange teaching. All through history, Christians have lived in worlds where there are many, many, many rival claims to the truth. Many different truths. Um, That's why our author talks of all kinds of teaching. Um, Some of the ones today, what, what will they be? Well, they might be the idea that on life's journey, you need to follow, you know, your dreams, satisfy your desires. You know, 
are told how we are special and unique. Or, or maybe it's the exact opposite, that reality, human life, needs to be understood in terms of groups. You know, you are defined by your age, uh, your gender, your sexuality, your origins, your class, and that's how you must make sense of life. Uh, maybe it's the idea that truth itself must, by definition, be tolerant and broad-minded. Um, maybe it's the idea that if something is more modern or more progressive, it must invariably be better. And there is no end of people in the media, the films we watch, the TV we watch, who, who are happily willing to make sense of life for us, willing to teach us, um, to provide us with what looks like solid ground. And it was no different for the Hebrews. And of course, it all seems so plausible, like it could be true. So how do we deal um, with these claims? Well, the point is, if there is, if there is truth, there is falsehood. In fact, most claims to the truth are incompatible with one another. In fact, the four I just mentioned are all incompatible with each other. That means most claims to the truth must be wrong. <laughs> In fact, all but one claim to the truth is, must be false. That's why our author speaks of all kinds of strange teachings. They are strangers to the truth. And because they are not the truth, there are all those different kinds of them. Because there is only one truth, one solid ground. Um, quick illustration. Um, I was terrible at maths at school, but even I know that only one of those statements is correct. Three of those would be very strange answers to give to the question. Um, but also, no, it would also be strange if we wrote um, something else. Next slide. Yeah. 1 plus 1 equals 1 1.9 recurring. Or 1 plus 1 equals 2.1. Those answers are just as wrong, uh, just as strange, even though they look a little bit closer to the right answer. And that's the point. Truth and falsehood at every level will be un incompatible with each other. There, there will always be a clash. You, you can't stand half of you on the solid ground and half be sinking into the swamp. It's all or nothing. It is Christ alone or no Christ at all. And of course, that is not how those around the Hebrews, these Hebrews, will have seen it. That's not how their friends and their families and their neighbors will have seen it. Uh, they'll have simply seen their, their friends, their relatives, their colleagues trusting Jesus. It's them that's being carried away by something strange. And these guys, the audience of this letter, you know, they would have been put out of their synagogues, disowned by their friends and family. At the very least, they would have been told that they were taking this, all, this Jesus thing a little bit too seriously. They were being too closed-minded, that maybe they should just accept that 1 plus 1 could equal 1.9 or 2.1. That is the same challenge we face today. And yet Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday, just as surely as 1 plus 1 equals 2. And if Christ is still our all-sovereign, all-loving creator and redeemer, he is still the only ground worth standing on. That's what's at stake here. So how do we keep going? How do we resist the lure to wander off into the swamp? Which leads us back on to verses 9 and 10. Uh, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial food, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Lots going on here. 
Um, not immediately obvious to us um, in the 21st century what our author means about ceremonial foods and tabernacles and so forth. But what he's doing is drawing a comparison between what we have in Christ and what we have without Christ. Effectively, we're being told to compare the market, compare the options. Um, for our Hebrews, the most tempting alternative to Christ would have been to go back to the synagogues, back to their ancestral religion. Um, its system of eating the right ceremonial foods, its system of sacrifices based uh, on the temple in Jerusalem. I suspect that's not a temptation for many of us, but there will be other worldviews we are tempted by. And our author says, compare them. Compare the alternatives to Christ. Uh, and imagine you're one of these Hebrews, and, and you, you have sort of two people. On the one hand, imagine the most pious priest under the Old Testament system. And on the other hand, the lowliest, most wretched, most broken sinner who has come to Christ for mercy. Who, who is better off? What does our author say? Well, our pious priest, as he eats his ceremonial food, well, actually, that is of no benefit, he says. Whereas, by contrast, those who trust and eat in Jesus have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And Hebrews 9 and 10 goes into lots of detail on this. The pious priest has to keep doing his sacrifices, originally in the tabernacle, now in the temple. He has to keep doing their sacrifices over and over again for his sins and those of Israel. Whereas the broken sinner comes to Jesus and is given a place at the table. Permanently. Another way of putting the contrast is why would you choose something impermanent? Something that isn't actually that great in and of itself when something brilliant and lasting is on offer. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. I was thinking, most of us here will be paying rent or, or mortgages. Imagine someone turning up and said, here are some keys and the title deeds, don't have title deeds with me, title deeds to a four-bedroom house. Great location, next to the station, five minutes walk, uh, but actually really need, near to the fields. Mortgage is paid, the decorating is done, we hacked into your Pinterest account so we know what interior decorating you like. Here you go. If that happened, how would you feel about paying exorbitant rent on a short-term contract for a flat uh, where the roof is leaking and the boiler is gurgling? I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be out of the door in a flash. When we are tempted off the solid ground, have a look at the alternatives. See if they can provide what an all-powerful, all-sufficient saviour can provide and stay rooted. As we come to a close of these verses, it's worth just considering the Lord's Supper, which we're about to share, because I suspect that's also lying behind verse 10, this idea of eating together. There were occasions for eating together in the Old Testament, um, going back to the, this, this altar in the tabernacle. And the biggest day for the altar in the tabernacle was the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, Imagine we were in that Old Testament Israel on that day. Well, most of us would be waiting outside the building, unable to approach. Um, if any of us were descended from the right priestly family, they would have to go in ahead of us. They would have to make some sacrifices, sprinkle blood, first for their own sins, then for ours. Uh, they still wouldn't be allowed to eat the food that they'd sacrificed. And they'd have to repeat this year on year, endlessly, just to be on the safe side. And yet tonight, as we share bread and wine, Christ bids us all come close.
gather around his table to eat with him. And this is just a table. It's not an altar. It's not an altar because there is no sacrifice to be made. Our altar isn't here. It's in heaven. That is where the sacrifice has already been made. The sacrifice that provides yesterday and today and forever. It has been done by Christ himself, our perfect high priest and our perfect sacrifices. And he gives it to us freely, to all who come to be feasted upon. His body and blood is shared out to strengthen us and to root us in the solid ground that he and only he can provide. Let me close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you most of all for that sacrifice made once for all on the cross uh, that is freely given uh, to all who will come. Thank you that what you provide is the same today as it was yesterday and will be forever. Thank you for so generously inviting us and gathering us to you. We pray that, yes, you would strengthen us, strengthen our hearts by your grace. Amen.